Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully, because there's no time to waste for all of us. Molly McDonald's the founder of the Pink Fund, a scrappy nonprofit that provides, as they say, real help now to newly diagnosed breast cancer patients by directly paying bills like rent, cell phone, and utilities so they can take those tasks off their plates and not have to worry about paying taxes on the financial support. To date, the Pink Fund has delivered $4.5 million directly to these women in need. But it's Molly's personal story that really got me because this is not your average boomer. After living much of her life with modern Downton Abbey level wealth, Molly experienced catastrophic financial loss thanks to her ex-husband. We're talking like $15 million in debt, left with sole custody of five children under 13 years old, alone, jobless, and Molly gets a breast cancer diagnosis. Her story is one of a feisty maverick with grit and grace who can empathize with people from all walks of life. Molly has made it her purpose to become a helper focused on serving others. I'm so stoked to use No Time to Waste to support this organization that puts small individual contributions, like my $50 from an Instagram ad, directly to work for the women in need at the time they need it most. So starting right now on the no time to waste project.com swag site, you can purchase $35 custom engraved No Time to Waste bracelets for a limited time that will directly support the Pink Fund this holiday season. Because I can't wait to be a helper like Molly too. Meet Molly McDonald for No Time to Waste. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from you, Allison, indicating that you had another tumor at the base of your brainstem. And I didn't know what to do with all that information, frankly, because I was dealing with some of my own personal challenges in our family. I had to let it settle. And then by the time it settled and I was ready to respond, the next email arrived and let me know that the treatments were working and I was so relieved. I, I still feel badly that I, that I didn't write back. I think sometimes, and this has been my experience with people who have a very serious illness and certainly cancer and certainly stage four cancer is that sometimes they don't know what to say. And so they say nothing mm. and you feel alone and abandoned by people who really do care. Yeah. Well, I, I know the courage. Brene Brown always, I always go to her as like my, my guru when it comes to courage and vulnerability and, I feel like I learned from her um, that they're not mutually exclusive. No. You know, they can sit in the same the same space. Um, but first, I just want to thank you for having the courage, because it's courage to say, you know what? I think back on that, either saying something or not saying something, and I feel bad about it, and here's why. And I just wanted to let you know I'm sorry, and yeah. I want to be better next time. Yeah. yeah. And like... I hear that and I take that in and I really appreciate it because you're not the only one <laughs> Two, I don't take it personally. Um, and three, I know many times in my life before I was on this whole train 
where I was in the same boat, right? You're like, I don't know what to say. And sometimes it's like, it's like the things that are the most jarring and like the most, it's like the worse they are, like the more silent they make you because you're like, how could I possibly come up with something? And, you know, the only thing that I would say to anyone else who has someone in their life where they're, they, they want to say something, but they just don't know what to say. I can tell you from the receiver's standpoint, you, it's okay to say, I have no words right. and hugs. Yeah. I have no words. That's it. Yeah. I, I want to just go through quickly how Molly and I got connected. Um, you know, I'm on Instagram and which I'm trying to get off the, the don't be a, watch the social dilemma. I'm doing a whole campaign about don't be a social dill. Um, but I'm on Instagram and I get targeted and there's a ad. I don't even know if it's sponsored, but it's a close up of a woman. And she, basically she just says, thank you so much. Like the pink fund was able to help me pay my car bill and my cell phone bill at the time I needed it most. Right. And I love everybody connects with personal stories. Um, and so I was on Instagram. It was really easy. And this is where tech comes into play on my phone for me to, it was like even $10 will help. Um, I will help, uh, you know, Tina. Um, and I was like, Oh, so I just clicked on, it'll go directly to her. And I was able to process a quick donation on my phone in 20 seconds and be done and feel like, well, that's great. Like that helped somebody and that feels good. Soon after, and I mean like probably within like 48 hours, I get an email from Molly here, the big fancy pants founder and CEO of the Pink Fund, who basically is like, I just wanted to thank you for your donation. And, and this was marketing gold, Molly, but you know this, I wanted to just find out how you heard about the Pink Fund, right? Because it's like the most important acquisition question when you get a new customer is how'd you hear about us? Because that right. tells you, right? Like what your efforts are doing. And uh, I said, yeah, I was like, I'm happy to chat. Well, whenever we get a donation that comes in online through our website, which is www.thepinkfund.org.org. Um, if it comes from somebody that's new or part of the country where I'm not sure how they would find out about us, I, I write back because I get it in real time. What I loved about our conversation was I was like, Okay. One, this woman's story is freaking the stuff that I could listen to all day. She is not only intelligent, but gritty and uh, a little snarky and she's a fighter. And, uh, and she, but underneath all of that is this, this rooted in altruism, you know, and this commitment that, you know, despite being, you know, years and years off from your own personal experience, um, you are still fighting every day um, for the women who uh, need to be fought for. I was like, this is not your average bear. And I, I like I like hanging out with not average bears. Also odd ducks um, and any other animal analogies. So share with me your story of this grit and resilience that kind of I, sounds like, you know, really powered you to have to fight for yourself and for your family and, and now fight for others. Um, that, that so resonated with me. So I think that I've always been a determined individual. I'm a firstborn. Um, my sister, who's five years younger, one of her childhood friends asked her one day, um, 
how did your mother handle Molly growing up? And she said, well, she didn't <laughs> because she couldn't. Um, and she told my sister that, and I, I've never heard this expression that she had, that I had a wild hair up my butt and I didn't, I still don't really know what that <laughs> means, but obviously it resonated with this individual. Um, I grew up in the sixties. I came of age in 1969 in an all white community, um, where you were either Protestant or Catholic. And I had no experience with anybody unlike myself, except individuals who were domestics in our home, or we had a chauffeur for a period of time, or the people that provided services to us. Okay, hard stop. Um, okay, so you just mentioned chauffeurs uh -huh. and uh, nannies. No and... nanny, no nanny. Oh, okay, sorry, but chauffeurs, this sounds, this sounds different than how most people live. Exactly. But it's how many, many people in our country believe that if they had all those things, especially when they looked at celebrities, um, that that would make them happy. And so they gamble or buy lottery tickets to achieve um, all the goods and services that they believe will fill their soul. And while I had a perfectly happy childhood and one of the one of the interesting things in looking back is that when I was at the University of Michigan, I was taking a psychology class and we had to go away on a retreat weekend and everybody had to sit in a circle and tell this story about their most traumatic childhood memory. And people went around the circle and said, shared things that I had never heard of, but some of which I'm living now. Um, and some of which I've lived because of my children and also because of the people that we helped through the pink fund. I'd never heard some of these challenges that people grew up with parents who were mentally ill or addiction issues, abuse. And so it came my turn to tell about something that had really been a childhood disappointment. And this is what I, all I could come up with, which really elicited kind of shock and horror from the rest of the group, which was I had gone away to summer camp, which I went every year from the time I was 10 to I think 13 four years for a month. And before I left, I had picked out all the new things to redecorate my room, like carpeting, fabric for the drapes, for the bedspread, wallpaper, paint, etc. And the whole time that I'm at camp, I just cannot wait to get home to have see how my room is going to look because I had it in my mind. And I got home and it hadn't even been started. And I was really pissed off. And that was my traumatic childhood experience. But in any case, I was a child that was um, prepared to live a perfect life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, private school, trips to Europe, private camp, uh, meet the right guys at the right places, the right clubs, the right, the right people. But and like also like kind of Downton Abbey. A little bit. I mean, we there is affluence in this country. There is upper middle class, but... You were you were rolling deep. Well, I, I I was we were upper middle class, but upper class was right down the road. So Henry Ford yeah. lived like a mile less than a mile away from our house. And got it. Um I went to school with like girls in the Chrysler family and girls who had so much more money than I had when I went to this private girls' school. It was shocking. I not experienced that. But in any case, my idea of a of life was that you got a great education, 
you worked for a while, this is my parents' idea, and then you married the right person and stayed home and played, had children and played tennis and bridge. Well, I didn't really like, I like tennis, but I'm not good at bridge. <laughs> and I didn't want to stay home. I love working. But in any case, in um, 1982, I met this man on a blind date and blindly married him nine weeks later. And that marriage, as I said, produced five children in nine years. And he was a, also had been on kind of the same track, private schools. His father was in line to be president of Ford Motor Company. But he came from um, what we in Gross Point called the other side of town, which was Bloomfield Hills. And that was the new money. Gross Point was the old money. So I always said I traded the old money of Gross Point for the new money of Bloomfield Hills. And we, I moved into this suburban life. And just as a backstory, I, I left the workforce in 82 because of sexual um, harassment and the fact that I wasn't really going to be able to rise up in my chosen field of journalism. It was really dominated by white men at the time. And interestingly enough, um, shortly before I left, the a friend who works with me at the Free Press, the former medical writer for the Detroit Free Press, she and some other women filed the first uh, class action lawsuit with the EEOC for discrimination. And it took about oh. seven, seven years before they won. But anyway, I meet this guy on a blind date, marry him, move out to the suburbs. And within a few weeks, I'm like, oh, gosh, I made a big mistake. I really want to go back to work. Hmm. Um, and and he was... Um, really changed. I mean, how do you know anybody after nine weeks? But after I married him, literally the day after became a different person. And so in the spring of 83, I filed, I filed for divorce, discovered that I'm pregnant. Um, he tells me he won't support me or see our child. So I stay in the marriage and he changes after the first child was born. And I have four more. When you say he changes, what do you mean he changes? He was nicer. <laughs> He, he was really softened a little bit by this by this baby, but that was very temporary. Got it. In the late summer, we moved into a bigger house on two acres. With a, we built a pool. We had a pool in our other house, but this pool had a pool house. And I lived this life where the groceries were delivered. Everything was delivered. You know, I'm like, I always tell people that my life was pretty much opening the door and writing checks at the time. You know, the pool boys, the yard service, the dry cleaner, the groceries. My clothes were brought to the house for me to try on and decide if I liked them or not. I had a personal shopper. Okay, this and, again, this is my this is like my modern Downton Abbey in my head. Sort of, but not that wealthy. Well, then I don't know wealth because <laughs> what you're talking about sounds bananas to me. Um, well, it was, uh, and, and again, I'll tell you another story. The, my neighbor across the street, when we moved to this larger house, her husband had been chief of staff in the White House under Jimmy Carter as a temporary interim chief of staff and chairman of the board of McKenzie Worldwide. And um, I went over one day for dinner. I think this must have been before I had my kids. And at that point, I was really bored. And I, I wanted to go back to work, but my husband didn't want me to. And so I had a masseuse that would come from Windsor, Canada to my house on Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock. <laughs> and and that day that I went to my friend Susie's for dinner, she opened the door and all hell was breaking loose at her house. She had four kids. The dogs had gotten in a fight and the spaghetti was bubbling over and somebody got burned. And Susie, despite all their personal wealth and her husband's very storied and elite career path, was very down to earth. And so she answers the door and she says, 
I can tell things are going on in the background. They're pretty crazy. And she says, well, how was your day? And I'm like, oh my God, it's the worst day of my life. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, my masseuse didn't show up. So that was my life. And that that's how I thought of myself. But the thing that Susie taught me, and, and Susie and her husband, by the way, had homes in Europe, in Utah, in Florida, in Connecticut. And he at one time was chairman of the board of McKenzie Worldwide. Um, but Susie was very down to earth. And Susie would walk into any party, event, anything. And with after saying hello, her first words were, how can I help? And Susie taught me about helping. And I started changing up my behavior from walking into a room where I kind of had this attitude of here I am to there you are to making it more about other people and not about me. And that was kind of the beginning of my metamorphosis from it's all about the money and the stuff, the education, the family of origin, um, to how can I serve others? So one of the first things I did when we lived in our large home is that I opened, I would hire a, um, a lifeguard on Tuesday afternoons. And I would invite people who didn't have a pool or didn't belong to a club to bring their children and swim in our pool. And we had a capacity of a hundred in the pool. So sometimes we had a hundred, but um, people would kind of, they couldn't really make a reservation, but they would show up. And if we had too many, then we would pull a few kids out for 20 minutes and let other kids swim. But, and I remember um, thinking that I really wanted to do something great. And I am, I am of the Christian faith, um, but I am not a, I don't go around spouting scripture to people, but I remember telling God that I, I wanted to do something to help others. But my caveat was I wanted to keep all my stuff. In the late summer of 1997, I drove up the driveway to our beautiful home with my five children, four to 13, strapped into the back of this big gas guzzling suburban. And I saw this small note tacked on the front door. It was the size of a rat card. And when I went in and I pulled it off, I read that the house was going to be auctioned off in 30 days. That evening, I had an unpleasant conversation with um, my children's father, during which I learned that this deal that he was in hot pursuit, among other unsavory pursuits, um, was being fronted by our own money. And that we were in the whole $15 million on top of the house, which was going to be auctioned off. And eventually he lost his business. All the cars were repossessed. Yeah. Let me just make sure everybody just got that. So Molly grew up financially very comfortable living a, a 1% lifestyle, right? Um, that was really the, the, the road paved to Oz. It was, it was there. Right. Um, and now not long after you are now left alone right? With five children mm -hmm. underneath the age of 15. 13, under 13. Under 13. And you have gone from living that 1% life to being $15 million in debt. Yes. And not only that, my um, husband's office manager had forged my name on her income tax and debting me to the IRS for close to a million dollars of unpaid taxes for one year. Well, the irony was that I had been having dreams uh, about 
the money being gone. And, and in Gross Point, where I grew up, people saved their money. They didn't show their money. They weren't showy. And my parents were always like, what are you going to do if the money goes away? And <clears throat> I would tell them, well, the money's never going to go away. There's so much of it. We're not and he makes so much every month, it's never going to go away. But I had these dreams that the money did go away, and I would wake up in this complete panic. And at that time, I had an infant that was a year old, and my father had died, and uh, my mother was aging. And I started thinking about what I would do if the money went away. And so I, I made a plan in my head. And so when I drove up the driveway and found that the house was going to be auctioned off in 30 days, I executed my plan which was I liquidated my IRAs from when I was single, I cashed in my small but somewhat significant whole life insurance policy that I also took out on my life when I was single. I had some um, stock in my name from Knight Ritter newspapers, which I was able to sell. And I sold a Steinway concert grand for cash. And then I bundled up a lot of my clothes and took it to a high-end resale shop. And everything else I had appraised for fair and forced market value and legally sold my goods to my mother. And then I rented a house for cash, hired three lawyers, a divorce attorney, an IRS attorney, and um, a bankruptcy attorney because I avoided personal bankruptcy. I did not want to file bankruptcy. On the morning of September 11th, 1997, I drive my kids to their private school and then pick them up and return them to this um, small enclave of what I call leave it to beaver looking homes. These homes were built in like 1962 in these subdivisions and there are about four models of them. They're all about 2,500 square feet. And we began a new life and I began to look for work because I'd been out of the workforce 12 years wiping butts and noses. And I really, everything had changed because of technology. So. The internet had started. Um, when I left the workforce, computers were just coming in. And I recalled when I was working at the Free Press, um, a woman came in to interview, and I was managing our promotion department at the time. And she looked like a deer in headlights. And I remember thinking, this woman has gone through a life change like a divorce, which is what exactly had happened to me. So, I, so I'll, now I'm the woman with the deer in headlights. But in any case, uh, I segued my career into sales because I was good at that. Didn't really like it, but it didn't matter where I would be as long as I was producing. So that way, if I had a sick kid or my mother had to be taken care of, nobody cared. And so I produced, it didn't matter. And in the spring of 2005, I was about to become uh, a principal of a company that was going to start at, in, well, like an affiliate sort of in Detroit. So I quit my job um, and used the two weeks interim and two weeks to get my teeth clean and have my annual mammogram. And I had no family history of breast cancer, no callback on a mammogram. At that time, I was 54 and my mammogram came back suspicious. And on Friday, April 1st, 2005, I'm in New York City pitching Major League Baseball on the graphics program. Uh, for the all-star game that was going to be played in detroit that july and the company that i had joined was on the short list to get the bid for this first big six-figure plus job so i was going to come in right out of the gate with you know significant business so i was feeling really relieved because the previous seven years our family really struggled uh, we went from 
you know, fresh food to 31 cent boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese. And I would sometimes have to buy carnation powdered milk to extend the whole milk that I would buy. And we never had any money for any extras. There was no money for camps for the kids. Uh, sometimes clothes were a problem. So um, this job was going to be six figure job, car, health insurance. So our lives were going to change for the better, at least financially. And then I get this diagnosis. So I'm, I jump in this cab. I leave uh, Major League Baseball offices on Park Avenue, which were quite impressive. And I jump in this cab to go back to LaGuardia Airport to fly home to Detroit. And my cell phone rings and it's my OBGYN who had delivered all five of my children delivering this news. Without interruption, I am immediately rushed into a sorority that nobody wants to join, which is the survivors of breast cancer. I mean, nobody asks for a cancer diagnosis. I did, I did not. I no, did not. Nobody does. No. Just in case anyone was wondering. No. no. Nobody raises their hand and says, give that to me. Nope. So now I have, I feel like I ethically have to tell these people that are making an investment in the, in a Detroit office that I have this health challenge. And so I shared it with them and we agreed it wasn't the right time to move forward. And that left me unemployed and unemployable. Um, while I underwent six months of treatment for very, the earliest stage of breast cancer, which is DCIS, but which people need to know can recur. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and while, it was unlikely to take my life. It did take my livelihood. And then I had the addition of this COBRA premium for uh, my health insurance. And at the time there was no ACA uh, and I didn't qualify for Medicaid. So it was COBRA or nothing. So I, I started freelancing right away and, but I didn't have enough money to make the COBRA premium and pay my other household bills. So within a few months, foreclosure notices started showing up in my mailbox and I couldn't make my car lease payment. And so the creditor was threatening to repossess my car. And by August, I couldn't make my utility payments because now I had rescued the house from foreclosure and I was able to make that with the help of my mother. Um, But I couldn't make the utility payment. And then my 20 year old daughter made that payment. And at that point, the, um, some of the systems that were in place, social systems to help, people like myself at this point, the money had run out. And that's very typical of a lot of programs is that by the third or fourth quarter of a calendar year, there's no more money left. And so people are left without any resources. I think the most important point though, is that while I'm in treatment, I meet these women in the radiation waiting room every day for six weeks. And there were other women who were employed, who were enduring much more toxic treatment protocols than I were. They had much more advanced cancer. They were concerned about their future as well. And they were going to make decisions like sell their house, pull their kid home from college, liquidate their IRAs. But in the most egregious of cases, they were going to stop treatment and go back to work. So that's when I went to the social worker and asked, why isn't somebody doing about this? And this is where I had this epiphany. And she just looked at me with a blank stare. And by the way, At that time, any program that I might have qualified for was predicated on my previous year's income, which knocked me out because I was above 250% of the federal poverty level for the county in which I lived. 
So that's when my friend Susie, who taught me to say, how can I help, decided if I can't get help, maybe I'm supposed to give help. And so this woman who once had the groceries delivered, but is now in line in the basement of a, uh, a church food pantry is deciding that she's going to help other women like herself. So I can't pay my own bills. I don't have a full-time job. I don't have any money, but I believe that I could do this. And that belief empowered and energized me to the point that today the Pink Fund has paid out over five, $4.5 million in bills to patients, creditors for housing, transportation, utilities, and insurance. So, I mean, that's $4.5 million, and I'll just explain quickly, you know, uh, there's a lot of different grant programs that are out there. I know as a patient, um, when I got diagnosed the first time, um, some of the, the grant programs really are dependent upon where you live, uh, the healthcare system you're in, how much money you're willing to pay for insurance. It's a very unfair system. Um, but what the Pink Fund does that's different is the money is going directly to the women that need it at the time that they need it most. It goes directly to their creditors. If we gave them the money, we would have to 1099 them and they would have to pay taxes on that. And that would be another burden to them. So. Got it. So you, um, a woman who's been recently diagnosed that is now facing, because of her diagnosis, a reduction in income that's so significant, it's going to hamper her ability to take care of herself and her family, right? At the time in which she's at peak trauma, um, she submits uh, basically an application, which is reviewed. And if that application is reviewed and approved, she receives uh, direct financial assistance for a period of three or six months, depending upon her stage of diagnosis. Um, and the and it's not just here's a check. The whole point is we're going to take care of it for you. Help us understand, right? Like, help us understand, like, what are the bills right now? We're going to take care of it. We're going to pay them directly. It's not just the money because when you're dealing with getting diagnosed, there's just an onslaught, an onslaught of doctors and referrals and second opinions and, you know, all talking to each other. And what's the plan? And like, I, I can I can say as not someone who is not an average bear and someone who is, you know, 20 plus years younger than the average age of a woman that gets uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, who is pretty on top of her stuff. Uh, it was hard for me to keep up, right? So I cannot imagine, cannot imagine what it's like for women who are raising children alone or has just lost their job, doesn't have financial stability. It was understanding that process and seeing that I could have a direct impact through whatever I could do now through no time to waste, hopefully being able to do a lot more. But how can I help in a small way, right, contribute to a fantastic organization that is run by a very scrappy maverick, which I'd like to say, like, hi, I'm a scrappy maverick, too. So nice to see you. And whose whose intentions are pure and filled with, I think, both grit and grace. Um, so I couldn't have been more excited to be like, I got a lot of stuff going on right now, but like, yep, this is going to be one of the organizations that I want to help. And I want to get people rallied behind them because, um, there are, you know, we know so many nonprofits, uh, large and small that are incredibly impactful to the research and to, uh, improving outcomes, um, for millions and millions of people all over the world affected by cancer. Um, 
I want to pick the I want to pick the the underdog um, that uh, is going to help people today with the kind of money that I think no time to waste. Um, the people associated with this would say, yeah, I would love to instead of another pair of furry socks for you know my aunt Janice. Um, I'd rather take twenty five dollars and donate that to the Pink Fund and be able to put that in a card. And handwrite a note to Janice and explain why I wanted to instead donate to the Pink Fund on her behalf. And like, that's the kind of organization that I want to be associated with, um, because that's the kind of impact that that I want to have. With, with the Pink Fund, what's been interesting with COVID is because so many people have been impacted by COVID in terms of their income, um, they begin to understand what it's like to not have a paycheck. And so that, for those who still do have a paycheck, um, we've seen an increase in donations, even though there's been some loss, but we've seen more people come to the Pink Fund to make a difference for those we help. Which is great. So I do want to say that the, one of the things that makes the Pink Fund different is that we are not a charity just for people who live at a certain poverty level. In fact, because of my experience, we... Um, women or men who come to us for help can be at or below the 500% of the federal poverty level. So for an individual, that's about $62,000. And for a family of four, it's 125,000. And in some zip codes, that's not much, but in other zip codes, it's significant. And that um, table is on our website under get help so that people can see if they fall into that household income range. Awesome. That's super helpful. Um, and how, so, you know, I kind of brainstormed with my team, <laughs> which is me and my producer um, and Bertie, who's my mini labradoodle. And I was like, squad, what are we going to do? Well, how can we, how can we help here? How can we do it in like a no timey kind of waste kind of situation, which is my own brand of, you know, non-corporate uh, maverick uh, Robin hooding. And what we're going to do, which we're super excited about is, you know, we did create some no time to waste swag, which you can find right now at no time to waste project.com slash swag. Um, it's just some t-shirts and some stuff. And, you know, I figured it out where basically keeping the cost super low for people to buy should be like a no brainer. And it just means that, you know, every t-shirt that gets sold on our site, $3 goes back to the pink fund. Um, every little sticker pack, a dollar goes to the pink fund, which is a hundred percent of the proceeds, um, because we're including free shipping, um, in everything. Cause who wants to deal with shipping? Um, but what we're going to do, which I'm super excited about, because when we air this, we should be ready to lock and load. Um, we are going to do a fantastic holiday swag item, um, for, uh, benefiting the pink fund. And we're going to put all of our efforts there. So, um, I'm sure many people have seen like just a simple bangle bracelet. It's going to be um, very much mirrored like the tattoo that I got of No Time to Waste, um, which is on my wrist. I realized not everyone wants to get a tattoo. Uh, great. Then we're going to get um, we're going to get some beautifully crafted custom design bracelets that say No Time to Waste um, written out on them. They're going to be thin. They're going to be stackable. You'll have the option of choosing uh, rose gold, gold, or silver. 
Um, and uh, the great thing is, is they are going to cost no more than $35. We're going to put them in a beautiful little uh, pouch and they're going to be uh, have a little card inside of a box so that they're ready for gifting. And there'll be a little information on the pink fund and a little information on no time to waste. And it should be a no brainer for the holiday season. By the time this podcast airs, you should be able to go to no time to waste project.com slash swag. You will see uh, our only holiday item that we are going to put all of our magic into. um, And we are going to encourage people to uh, buy those bracelets, uh, give them as gifts, thank teachers, um, remind the people that you love exactly what Molly just said, um, and keep the spirit of no time to waste, you know, alive and, and kind of on your person every time you see it. I want to say something though about no time to waste, because there's nothing like, um, a terminal cancer diagnosis to wake you up, right? That, that, we all have an expiration date stamped on our forehead, but we don't see it. But when you have that stage four cancer diagnosis, it starts, you, you don't know what it is, but you can subtly see it, you know, and you're like, I don't have any time to waste. What am I going to do with the time I have left? And by the way, I don't know how much time I have left. So I better get busy living and make a difference. And that's what you're doing, Allison. What I got last week was the gift of time. The universe said, here go have a great ski season. You feel physically great. Don't do something stupid with the brain. Give it time to recover. Get off your damn computer and your screens at night. And you got, you got stuff to do, Allison. Like go, go. You got people to talk to. You got stories to share. You got people to help. And like, I'm, I'm like, it's on, it's on like gangbusters. And I can't wait. This is, I am in the flow of what I, my purpose is, and I'm going to, I'm going to give it 110%. So this is from a physician um, named Rihanna Otis who wrote a book called In Shock, and she had a disease called H-E-L-L-P syndrome. It's something that you have when you're pregnant. She lost her baby, and she was very, very ill. It really taught her about how physicians care or don't care for patients. And this has really resonated with me because, as you well know, you have no time to waste because nobody gets out alive, right? I mean, We're all going to die, but it's what we do while we're living that makes a difference. And I think that is what you are doing right now. So this is her quote. We cannot define success as beating death because death cannot be beaten. The undeniable fact of death remains imposing and impending regardless of our temporary victories. How we care for each other during life is the true restoration, the definition of agency. That is the win, the success we must look for and mark and define ourselves by. Our ability to be present with each other through our suffering is what we are meant to do. It is what feeds us when the darkness inevitably looms. We cannot avoid the darkness just as we cannot evade suffering. Loving each other, through the darkness is the thing to look for and to mark. It's there in the shadows where we find meaning and purpose. And that is what you are doing. You are in the shadows, bringing meaning and purpose, not only to your own life, but to the lives of others. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being a motivator and an inspiration to me because you were the first person that I encountered 
in the sort of cancer community where I said, oh, that's my people. I'm a, I'm a maverick too. And I get it done. And it's, and it's not about me. It's about other people. And like, let's go do it. Well, the beauty of your podcast is that it's going to live on. Feeling fired up, ready to go out there and maximize your moments. Then help us get the word out. Rate and review the pod so people can find it and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. There's no time to waste. 